This is the story of two guys, Robert and Grant. Together they were one of Australia's great songwriting duos, Forster McLennan. They met as Bright's brainy arts students and formed the backbone of the Australian band, The Go-Betweens. If you know only one of their songs, it might be Streets of Your Town or it might be Cattle and Cane. But The Go-Betweens made nine wonderful, influential albums together and Robert and Grant's working relationship and loving friendship lasted 30 years. In the middle of that time, they took a break from the band to make their own stuff, and then they reformed the go-betweens, older, wiser, and some say even better. And in the first decade of this century, they were making new records, playing around the world to adoring audiences, and they had no plans to stop. Until, in 2006, when Grant suffered a heart attack and died. He was 48. Robert Forster has said that meeting Grant McLennan was like finding a long-lost friend. And today Robert's back on Conversations to tell the story of that friendship and of the adventures they had. Robert's written a beautiful, wonderful book called Grant and I, Inside and Outside the Go-Betweens. Welcome back, Robert. Thank you, Richard. Who was the Grant McLennan you met in 1975 at the University of Queensland? He was a uh, precocious 18-year-old quite innocent, an innocent person. He was sitting a couple of chairs down from me in a uh, tutorial on an English subject, and he was leaning forward, I remember that, leaning forward in his chair, listening to the professor, open-faced, receptive, highly intelligent, and someone who'd obviously probably done well at school. You know, he he was one of the, the bright boys. It's really obvious that you courted his friendship in a funny sort of way. What made you want to court his friendship? I just think it was his um, the quickness of his mind, and he seemed an approachable person. I just sensed something about him, and I think he sensed it about me too. And we just started talking. You know, it's the way two people just split out of a class or a meeting, you know, when you're at a board meeting or something. For some reason, you stand beside someone and you walk out and you start talking. Because everyone else is a bit boring compared to yeah, that person. Maybe, maybe. Maybe it was something that I said in the tutorial. You know, I might have said something funny or he might have said something funny. Um, that probably would have been it. Um, and it probably would have been me, you know, because I was a little bit more of a <laughs> uh, a show-off and a performer. And maybe that's what got us talking. And immediately there was a crackle. And we we were totally fascinated by pop culture. You know, he, he was very much into film, music, um, TV, and so was I. And so we, we were turned on, you know, like totally... Um, it's almost like we're waiting for someone to talk to about um, our enthusiasms. I think that by and large, the best or the strongest male friendships often are forged in collaboration. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's true? I do, especially in a town like Brisbane, you know, where, you, where you're off the action. I think perhaps if you're walking down Broadway, if you're walking through Soho in London, you might think you could do it yourself. But... In Brisbane, you, I felt, always felt, and it came on as I got to know Grant, that 
I needed collaborators. An I, accomplice. Yeah, an accomplice. Exactly. We're doing a bank job. You know, someone's <laughs> got to climb up the ladder while the other one stays on the ground watching the, the cops aren't coming. And there's the go-betweens. Um, it was like that. It, yeah, an accomplice. That's a very, very, very good word. How much did you find out about Grant's family, his background? I knew little. We were, we were both 18. I don't know if this makes a difference. We've both been to private schools. Personal information. Uh, information was quite contained. We didn't talk much about the past. At 18, you don't. It's all about the future. It's all about now. So bits came out from Grant. You know, I knew that he'd... Uh, his father died when he was six. But th th this was um, territory he didn't want to go back to. You know, if you're 18, you're not... And your father dies at six and you've got a, a male friend, you're not going to sit down and workshop that. But that was the only, really the only big piece that was not gone into. My parents were both alive. But the differences were fairly clear from the start. I was the suburban boy, happy in family, although there was tensions. And he, he was a little bit country. He'd been born in Rockhampton. He'd spent his, up until the age of 11 or 12, up in Cairns. He'd, he'd been to a school where he'd been in border for five years, and he was in a St John's College out at Queensland University when I first met him. So he was the border boy who was by himself. Um, but I, I was the suburban boy. Those were the differences. How did the two of you come to be sword fighting in the streets of St Lucia near the university? We met in this one class, which was in the second half of 1975. The, the class ended in November. We thought we'd never see each other again. Then we both, without knowing, enrolled in drama. And drama was conducted in a theatre, a small theatre called the Avalon. And it got us out of the university, the, the, the Mickey building, which, you know, is like an ant farm, um, and it got us out where it was more like a workshop, a lot looser, something like a little theatre company, you know, like where you could flourish. We didn't learn acting, but there was a costumes trunk which was catnip for Grant Knight, you know, like, you know, capes, moustaches, top hats, you know, we loved it. And then we'd cut, there were swords. And so Grant took a sword and I took a sword and we used to sword fight, uh, hands on hip, you know, legs spread. And we'd, we'd do the, the, the sword fighting inside the theatre. And then one day when we realised that the traffic of Frenage, uh, Chanel Drive was the main drive into the main road in the university, and it got clogged. And so it was often just you know, just stand, the cars are standing. And Grant and I were, were sword fighting at the top of the stairs and we just sort of one day started to go down and there was railings down the middle so we were jumping over the railings and we were doing the sword fighting. And about halfway down, we knew this, but people started to see us, uh, you know, two 18-year-olds. And then we sort of got to the bottom and then we started to sword fight between the cars and, you know, pinning each other, but never, never, ever laughing at anyone and giving, aren't we, you know, funny little fellows? It was all dead serious. So we're sort of sword fighting with each other and, you know, I'd pin Grant down in the car, you know, you bastard, take that. Then he'd fight back. And then we just sort of, we rewound like a film. We just sort of went back up the stairs and back in. So it took about 10 minutes. And so people that were just sitting in their cars, these students, you know, some of them were laughing and some of them just couldn't work it out and were just in shock. But... In a way, these were the first go-betweens performances. This is the first time Grant and I were before the public doing something that was not four-star McLennan University students. It, it had a, another purpose. It was a performance. Like you say, you're a suburban 
boy brought up in the gap in Brisbane's western suburbs, mm-hmm. which is a very pleasant place to live. Mm. Was there a part of you that was terrified that you might stay there yes. and not be propelled out of there? Yeah. I, I was comfortable in the suburbs in school. There's nothing you can do. Uh, but played, played cricket. Playing, all those play, things. playing yes. cricket, playing soccer, it's, it's sport. Um, it's, you know, on Sunday you, you go and visit relatives. Uh, then on Monday you're back at school. It's all, it's all very programmed. Um, and when I was 18, 19, I was scared I was, I was going to get caught there, you know. And, and mainly, and this is a, a bit tough, but it was through that I'd have a teenage girlfriend and, and that I wouldn't get out. My parents weren't keen on me leaving home, so I was at home. I wasn't in the student house milieu, which immediately you're in a student house, possibilities are there. You know, you could be in France next week. Anything could happen. People could walk in the door. It's very loose. But at the gap, living with your mum and dad, the the world is, is, is a ball. Yes. And I was scared I was going to be kept in the ball, not necessarily by my, my mother and father, but by the surrounding by people around me. Yes, the problem isn't, isn't that you hate it. The problem is that you don't hate it, isn't it, yes. really? <laughs> yes, it is. It is, it is, mm. which means it can entrap you. Yeah, that, exactly so. So with meeting Grant mm-hmm. and finding someone so simpatico, there is a kind of, I don't mean to be silly about this, but there's a kind of romance in that, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not sexual, but it's still a romance, a kind of a, you're fascinating strangers to each other for a while. Yeah, 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 we are. Um, we were both of us very naive, I think it was a little bit once we started the go-betweens in 1978 and we're living in the same house with other people and just the oddness of our enthusiasms, you know, just there were sort of raised eyebrows probably around town sort of, um, what are these guys? I think that that was the general impression. You're like, and I think it was more coming from outside. I think Grant and I were so naive. We were just like heads down, like on the band, on our ideas. We, we wanted to write films. We wanted to do a whole lot together. So music was just one option amongst yeah, many yeah, at yeah, that yeah. point. You were the first to start writing songs, though, weren't yeah. you, Robert? Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you've been listening to a lot yeah. of pop radio yeah. in, in, in the early 70s growing up on 4QR, 4KQ yeah. in, in Brisbane. Yeah. Yeah. What effect did hearing the Ramones for the first time have on you? Well, that wiped the slate clean. Everyone after that moment, like Led Zeppelin and Yes and Deep Purple, sounded very flabby. Uh, it's interesting with the Ramones, you know, because now they're part of rock history. But when that first album landed in, in April 76 and I bought a copy on uh, import, I was waiting for it because I was reading the, in, the English music press and I knew it was coming, it was a very hard record to figure, although it was liberating. You know, it was like 14 songs in 26 minutes. And it was also just all the iconography was already there. It was very, very the symbols and the the design of it, and the the way the cover looked, the four of them against the wall, in those you know it looked like a uniform. It looked like very, very thought out art rock. And the fact that you know by the fourth and fifth album you realise they weren't going to change, and then they become part of rock history was not the perception you had when the record came out. Oh, I see. So the hard, driving, really short three-chord yeah, songs. Yeah, it was revolutionary. Right. And, and also, it said to me as a songwriter, um, I just started to play guitar. See, the, th- the thing with heavy metal is, and, and progressive rock, is it camouflages the basics. That's the concept of it. Virtuosity 
hides the simple of the songs. Yeah. If, if you if you listen to to Led Zeppelin or if you listen to um, Uriah Heep or even, you know it just sounded like like you, you had you had to be practicing fifteen years to write these songs. Where the Ramones came along and it was like, oh, I can hear the chord changes. They're just playing with three chords, and so I could play along to the Ramones and work out their songs on paper, which I couldn't do with even someone like Bowie was um. Unbelievably complicated. Besides the fact that he had a huge amount of knowledge in terms of chords um, and mu- musical theory at his fingertips, there was all the production that made decoding records very difficult in the 70s, where the Ramones, it came through. Your first song you wrote that you said you were pleased with was a song called Karen. Yep. Uh, I mean, I, I love the words too. To Karen. It's one of those songs that you sing out loud and you sort of laugh as you sing. I just want some affection. I don't want no hoochie-coochie mama, no backdoor woman, no Queen Street sex thing. Yeah. <laughs> Queen Street, perhaps one of the most banal shopping precincts you can think of in, <laughs> in the world at the time. You've got that right. <laughs> That's fabulous. Is there a bit of T-Rex in there as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's glam rock, you know, which, which came through on AM radio. Um, was a precursor if you like, to the, um, the Ramones. And once you, wrote, once, once you wrote down a line like that, did you, did you go, where did that pop out from and have a bit of a giggle yourself? No, I didn't. I was right. very, I was very um, earnest and I could see the humour, <laughs> but I was a 20-year-old without a girlfriend and, you know, I was quite desperate. And, and so there's two things going on. There, there is the, the humour that goes all the way through the song, but underneath that is, is a, a feeling... That is quite true, you know, like I was lonely, I was at the beginning of my adult life, but I'm just happy that I, I had the uh, wherewithal to put it down. You know, I can now look back at that, I can listen to that, what, you know, you reciting those lyrics and I go, yeah, that's me at 20. <laughs> I know this girl, this very special girl. She works in a library, yeah Standing there behind the counter Willing to help with all the problems that I encounter Helps me find Hemingway Helps me find Genet Helps me find Brett Helps me find Chandler How interested was Grant in making music at that stage? Not very I'd asked him to form the band at the start of 1977, and he said no the first time. Uh, no? No, he said no, and um, he said yes at the end of the year. He wanted to be a filmmaker. How did you get him to change his mind? A, t- a couple of things, which I'm only guessing at. One of them was at the end of that year, the band that I'd been in from 1975 called The Goddos played Karen for the first time publicly at a Battle of the Bands competition here in Brisbane. And it had an effect on the audience. Grant was at that show. And so Grant must have gone, you know, that's a good song. And I could join forces with him to play that song and other songs he's got. And I think that really he just thought, I'll take a year off. You know, I think he was enjoying Brisbane. He was enjoying where he was living in the shared house. He was working at the Tuong Music Centre. He had a pretty good life. And I think... Before he went off to film school down in Sydney, I think he just thought, okay, I'll learn bass. And he liked music. 
like he 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 had a good record collection. Yeah, but the thing I like about this process, Robert, is you didn't audition him as a bass player. Yeah. He auditioned you. Yeah. Really, pretty much. He auditioned you as a as a potential collaborator as a songwriter. He did, which is very grand. You know, uh, he's cautious. He he is watchful. And so I had to go over to his place to convince him. I had to go over to his place <laughs> at Golding Street, play all the songs under a cassette. He went away for Christmas up to North Queensland and telling me that he'd listen to the songs and he'd write me a postcard if he was going to start the band with me or not. Later when people go, yeah, but the go-betweens didn't do this or didn't do that, I always go, well, that's our start. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know you, you think there's going to be some act of blood brotherhood where you get a knife oh, I know, and you cut your arm open and you rub blood together or something and then you'd, I don't know, kill a sheep or something. <laughs> but, but no, he sent you a postcard from he, North Queensland. He sent me a postcard. But, but what did he say in the postcard? Well, he, he just said... Boy, there's something there for the future. Yeah, I've been listening to the tape. Boy, there's something there for the future, which for Grant, I knew was you know the, the equivalent of you know slitting the wrist and joining the the, the the blood in Eternal Brotherhood. I saw that and I, I knew that that was a yes. And then when when he came back to Brisbane, that we were you know he was going to buy a bass. I was going to teach him. We were going to start the Go Twins. Tell me about the moment moment when you pitched the idea of the name for the band to him. We were driving across the William Jolly Bridge, the Grey Street Bridge as it's also known, and Grant many years later called me the strategist. And Grant was, although he was cautious, like I said before, he lived a lot more in the moment. Well, I was a secret planner. And so I had a name for the band. And so Grant, I was waiting for him in a way, you know, to ask that. And so we're driving across the Grey Street Bridge. Grant didn't drive. I was driving. And uh, he just turned to me and he just said, um, so have you got a name for the band? And I went, okay, here it comes. And I, I just drew breath and I said, the go-betweens. And I looked at him and I, then I blinked at him and I went back on the road because I knew that the band was always going to be 50-50, you know, like it was going to be a meeting of two minds. And so here was I coming in with the, with the name. And he just waited, again, caution, and then he just said, yeah, good, right. And I went, okay, we're away. And then some 30 and then, years and then, later. And then, and then what is it? Uh, yeah, 30 years later, the first bridge built over Brisbane in 40 years in the middle of the city is built and they have a competition to name the bridge and go-between bridge wins. So 40 years later, about 400 metres, 300 metres we'll say, from where Grant and I were in 1978, driving across the bridge. I'm standing there with Campbell Newman as Lord Mayor. The rest of the band are gathered. And um, I pull back the curtain. We got the go-between bridge. How delightful. You never had the 10 million selling album. No. But you do have a massive bit of public infrastructure named after your band, which is which which I'd have to think would do in the end, wouldn't it? It, well, it does. It's lovely. And um, it's certainly something you don't think about when you're starting a band. Grant, as you say, is a man who, who had a reserve to him and mm. would rather talk to you by the sound of things about other things he enjoyed or the things yeah. you were going to enjoy together. Yeah, yeah. Then he started writing songs yeah. and started writing songs, the very personal songs. Did you feel he was talking to you as much as the rest of the world in once he brought those songs to you? Because you most of the time be the first person to hear them. Yeah, I was. Um, I never felt that. I never felt he was trying to 
put messages through to me through through the lyrics. Um, Grant was far more poet. You know, um, he wrote poetry, and he had a lot of poetry books. So so Grant's lyrics had this sort of slight academic feel to them, more more than mine, which were you know you you just quoted them, which were a little bit more of the street, to for want of a better word. A little bit more conversational, where, where Grant's were a lot, little bit more formal, and but there was also this melancholia to them, right from the word go, which really did take me by surprise because I just know in the nineteen, twenty, twenty-one year old guy around the house, you know, we're watching Gilligan's Island, we're playing cricket out the backyard, you know, need a girlfriend, that sort of stuff. Where, where, where Grant's had a sort of seriousness and a you know, I can only say, say a sense of melancholia right from the word go. How unusual was that at the time? Because, you know, I remember the, the feeling around punk music at that time, which is what you were following, Yeah, was there was a kind of hard, unsentimental face yeah. to it. Yeah. It was a response to what was perceived at the time to be hippie effusiveness. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there were, so it, it's quite unusual to hear songs, punk-influenced songs, that are so... Um, emotionally available. Is that yeah, the word? Yeah. I don't like that word. They were, but they did have like a, a post-punk obliqueness to them. So it sort of went with the times to an extent. But still, he, there was a sadness to what he wrote about, which so, really did uh, catch me by surprise. So there you are. You're both performing around town, borrowing drummers here and there yeah. to, for your live performance, but going over very, very well, as it turns out. Yeah. With You've got these kind of dreams of some kind of glory, I suppose, yeah, with your music down the tree. This beautiful dream, which you have yeah. to have if you're going to subject yourself to all the kind of rigours of this life. Yeah. And then the most surprising and extremely unlikely thing happens. A band out of Brisbane called The Saints releases a single called I'm yeah. Stranded yeah. and storms the UK yeah. with it. Yeah. Out of Brisbane. Did yeah. that blaze a trail for you? Did you think, well, we might be able to do that as well? We were following The Saints' plan. It was a wonderful thing. They laid down this trail with very easy steps. You stay in Brisbane, you record a classic single, you send it overseas, you get signed by a London label. You don't even bother with Sydney or Melbourne. You know, like that's what mm. bands had to do. You had to go down, you know, and be on the circuit, man, and then, then you deserved your shot at overseas where the Saints just went, no, we're going from Brisbane and we're going to London with a, a worldwide album deal. Because the, the and, truth and, is you have no time to lose, actually. That's the truth. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. You're exactly right. Yeah. You, you know, like, also, Grant and I aren't rock and rollers. So the idea of going down to Sydney or Melbourne and spending three or four years on the, the pub circuit, yuck. We don't <laughs> want to do that. That sounds like the worst thing in the world. No, it'd be horrible. Yeah. You know, like, we, ju we just wanted to jump straight to the action, which meant that we jumped straight to the action without any support, but it, it sort of, we had a breakthrough in London. But the Saints were... The plan was right there before our eyes, and it was wonderful. You and Grant both wanted a, a drummer, and you both wanted a woman drummer yeah. as well. What, was there any particular reason for that? Was just the image of it or, or what? It was that everything, you know, everything that we liked had men and women characters. So why, as soon as you start an artistic project yourself, which we did with the Go-Betweens, of course you want men and women in that project, you know, and also both of us just liked the idea of three people, two men and a woman. And so it was like, you know, we're both obsessed with Truffaut's film Jules and Jim, which is about a triangle. 
We liked the Mod Squad, which was a, a TV show from the 70s. <laughs> yes. And for Grant and I, it was like, now that's an interesting three people. You know, like imagine if that was a rock band. Do you know what I mean? Like it was – and also I must – one other influence I think is the Velvet Underground, which was initially on their first album was three men and two women. And you have to remember this is an, in an era when it was the Kinks, the Who, the Beatles, the Stones, all men. And suddenly, you know, there was this band – that had three men and two women. So before you even listen, listen to the album, you have to go, that's interesting. Yeah. And, and then you happen to fall in love in Brisbane with a tall, blonde drummer, mm-hmm. Lindy Morrison, and a, very, a supremely capable one as well. Yeah. Uh, but that's complicated. How tricky was it to invite your girlfriend to join the band? It was difficult, but it was something that... And it took a while. It took about uh, a year because Lindy was already in a band, Zero, who were very popular around town. Uh, and after we'd known each other for a, Lindy and I had known each other for a while, I went overseas with Grant, uh, where we got a, to do a record overseas. And then, then we came back. Then after a month or two, you know, like the band started to get come together and, Grant, and Lindy and I came together as well. And so it was a big thing to bring my girlfriend into something that Grant and I had built for two or three years. But she was what we're looking for. Uh, Very charismatic person. Um, A great drummer, and her style completely fitted the material that we're writing. Uh, And, you know, like, we we passed the the mod squad test. You know, like, we looked... We looked very interesting. And that's something that, as as sort of uh, thin as that may sound... We look right. We intrigue people from the start. And so I think, you know, musically, it took us a while to become a really great band. I think, you know, we look better than what we sounded for a while. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler on ABC Radio. You and Grant took off to London. And what was it like to go from the real periphery of the world as Brisbane kind of was in those days to the very centre of where all the new music was being invented in London? It was overwhelming and underwhelming at the same time. How underwhelming? What do you mean? I think the city was underwhelming. We, we probably expected something a little bit more romantic. We expected a little bit more Paris or Rome. And what we got was... Rising damp? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got it in one. But at the same time, this music musical world, you know, Bowie came from Rising Damp. You know, T-Rex came from Rising Damp. You know, how did they do it? The flowers but, in the dustbin. That's the, that's the image, isn't it? It is. These exquisite creatures that come out of this kind exactly. of impoverished, dingy place. Exactly right. And so we were confronted with that and we had no contacts, of course, no contact, no, not a phone number. We just arrived thinking that so far our career had flourished in the two years in Brisbane. We'd recorded two singles. Everything had sort of come our way in our, in our hometown. And we thought by going to London that somehow something would happen. And I can't even tell you what it was, Richard. But it was, you know, we'd, we'd walk down the street and someone would go, you two guys. I love the way you're walking. I love the acoustic guitars in your hand. You've just come out of a bookshop where you are holding a Billy Wilder biography. I love that too. Um, you probably know, you know, Bob Dylan well, you know, his songs. Let's go, five albums. You know, we just thought it'd be like that. It's like a Hollywood movie, 
you know, but that's we'd travelled ten thousand miles, we'd bought the tickets, we had the suitcases. We just thought and it's something, you know, that we if you're there, something might happen. It didn't quite pan out that way. You did make some wonderful contacts with the band Orange yeah, Juice in, yeah. in Scotland. Yeah. Then you came back. But you, you went back to London in 1983, yeah. and by then you had Lindy as a drummer, you had an yeah. album out, your first album, Send Me a Lullaby, mm-hmm. and you had a bass player as well. How did Grant introduce you to this new song he'd written called Cattle and Cane? Grant was writing his first really great batch of songs. He'd been writing for two or three years. And it was a time when he was writing just so many great guitar riffs that I almost didn't pick up the first time that he played it to me. I just thought, oh, this is one of many really good riffs he's got. But it was the lyric more than the music that really got me. You know, I recall... I recall... Schoolboy coming home. Schoolboy coming home Through fields of cane To a house of tin and timber And in the sky a rain of falling cinders From time to time the waste Memory waste That album, Before Hollywood, did what you wanted it to do. You you had gone from Brisbane straight to London mm. and it had become very successful. I remember seeing the adoring reviews it got in the New yeah. Music Express and it Sounds and all those papers. Yeah. And today people still, in Britain, still cite it as one of the kind of seminal yeah. albums yeah. of that period. Yeah. It was an album that they just caught a moment beautifully because post-punk, with, with all its angles and, uh, dis- you know, destruction almost, and its its crashes, unorthodox time signatures and, and lyrics, it just sort of started to come out of that. And we just sort of had that, but we also had a pop sensibility to it. We, we could put melody to something that was quite jagged. And it was the, the record was, was very well produced. So we got the moment there. We had the songs. Lindy Grant and I were, had played it as a band for two years, two and a half years. So we really had a sound together, the three of us. And that's, I think, why it got appreciated so much at the time and why it's still appreciated now because it's seen as a key record of a marriage between adventurous music and pop. And, and deeply personal songwriting too. Yeah. I, sometimes I wonder if you were a little ahead of your – well, well ahead of your time with that yeah. at a moment when people are making this crashing post-punk music. You're yeah. writing these personal songs uh, with a bit of a pop sensibility. I wonder in some ways if, if you made it a lot easier for the Smiths to come along and charge I- along in your wake in, in some ways. I think Before Hollywood is uh, a key album at the start for rock bands. And, and you must remember we, we were operating – in an era when we arrived in London where we were told when we arrived, rock is dead. Uh, you know, why are you playing with the guitars? The the time was very much, you know, Soft Cell or Spandau Ballet or Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Rock rock was very much out of fashion at that time. But we managed, so if you wanted to do something, you had to refashion it to an extent. And that's what we did. And for the beginning of the 80s, it was a record that, you know, reverberated. You write that you went back to Australia for a short while after mm-hmm. the success of Before Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And when you came back, you felt like you had to start almost all over again, even though you'd been away for just six months. Yeah. That really shows, doesn't this really show how quickly the culture was moving at that point? It was, um, especially underground music. It was a time when 
from the start of punk, it, it really sort of set off, you could say, a 15-year wave that you can see from 1975, 76 that goes all the way through to, say, Nirvana in 91. And so you, you, you see this wave getting ever bigger and then it sort of bursts through with Nirvana uh, and grunge in general and Riot Girl in the early 90s. And if you were part of it, if you were part of it, like the go-betweens were all the way through that time, you could feel it and you could feel people that were doing things in the underground. You'd meet them again two years later and these would these would be like... Um, tour promoters or graphic designers or photographers or filmmakers and they'd be further on down the road with their careers. So you just felt this sort of wave of people around rock getting ever and ever bigger and the wave getting bigger until it bursts through with a whole other sensibility and then you get the big day out and you get all these, you know, the festivals of punk that begin in the early, late 80s, early 90s. As the 80s wore on, you and Lindy broke up. But yeah. Lindy stayed in the band, as you, you both did, of course. Then Grant started going out with the band's new member, yeah. Amanda Brown. Mm-hmm. What did Amanda bring to the band? For a start, she was um, a good six years younger than anyone else in the band. She brought an enthusiasm. By that time, by the time she joined in 86, we were a little bit battle-weary. We'd done... Uh, we'd done by that stage four albums and we'd been on four record labels. So she bought that enthusiasm, you know, just someone younger with belief. Many of the songs Grant wrote at the time, some, yeah. some of his best songs that yeah. were love songs to Amanda, and the first one was Quiet Hearts. Yeah. Such a beautiful song. That's probably his, his biggest, certainly his biggest song, an amazing song. Traditional chords you think you've heard a hundred times before, which, which you have heard a hundred times before. He's playing two chords, you know, when he first showed it to me, and it's just D up to A. And I'm just sitting there thinking, I've heard this a hundred times before, you know, like it's the two chord chug. And he gets a new melody out of it. The heater is on. The windows are thin. And then he builds out of that melody. I'm trying hard to keep this warm thing. How was it to find a producer who was on your wavelength in the 1980s? It was very difficult. This was the fight of the band. Do we go natural or do we go slightly artificial and try and get a hit? The hit, especially as the decade wore on, would have been a a loss of credibility, but it would have been money, and we really needed money. And so that was on one side, and on, on the other was, well, do we just stay true to our course 
do we stay true to our poverty and just keep on going? And maybe in 15 years people time, people will look back on these records and, and um, appreciate what we did. And in a way, we end up doing a bit of both. And so from record to record, it was a little bit confusing. And also there weren't all that many producers that were sympathetic to what we were doing. Because if you wanted to work as a producer, really you had to be doing hits. For for 16 Lovers Lane, we, we worked with Mark Wallace, who was probably, after the person, John Brand, who, who made Before Hollywood, he was probably the next good producer we worked with. On that album, 16 Lovers Lane, you had a, a kind of a hit with the song. Well, a hit, really, I think it's fair to say. Or no, it wasn't hit. a hit. Streets of Your Town wasn't no, a hit? There, no, no, Richard, there are no hits. There are no hits. There are, there, are, there are no hits. I wish there was. Have I, have I misre- misremembered that? Because in, in, in the kind of dim recess of my memory, I recall it being a kind of a hit. I remember no, hearing it no. all over the place. You, yeah, no. You heard it all over the place. That's true. <laughs> we heard it all over the place as we drove around in cars, but it wasn't a hit. It's possible for a record to get played heavily over three or four weeks this happened to us in both countries. It happened to us here in Australia and it happened in the UK about eight, eight or ten months later when, when Streets of Your Town was re-released. You heard it on the radio for three or four weeks, but then did it become a hit? No. And so the record doesn't get played after those three or four weeks because the people that are, are at the radio stations see that they've played the record for three or four weeks. It hasn't gone into the charts. You know, it isn't in the top 30. So they stop playing it. So yes, you heard it, but it didn't become a hit. this period you're huge in Europe you're, you know you're touring throughout Europe you still have this kind of loyal following because you're turning out really good album after really good album after really good album but were you living hand-to-mouth more or less throughout that entire time that that entire yes. 10-year period yeah yeah especially in in London it was really um, you know I went to sleep hungry it was very very tough um, when we we're lucky um, we we're on 50 pounds a week which sort of put that in perspective, you know, like a bus card to get us around town, which we needed, you know, like a tube card, cost seven and a half quid. Okay, so now you're already down to, you know, 42 and a half quid for the rest of the week, seven seven days in the week, so you, you've got about six quid a day. That's what you're living on. You know, you, you really were suffering for your art. There, there, there's no other way around it. But, you know, we were making albums. We, we knew great bands that weren't making albums. That, that weren't going to leave a trail behind. But it was very, very tough, you know, like, and London's a hard town without money. London's the only town I've ever been in where I've held food in my hand and someone's walked down the street and grabbed it out of my hand, you know. And this is what I've, I really found galling and, and that we're unlucky. 
We didn't have an uncle and auntie out in the country. We didn't have someone across town who just went, you're hungry, come over. And then you just go over and there's food on the table. You know, we couldn't ever walk into someone's fridge and open it and just start to make yourself a sandwich, which you can do anywhere in Australia. So by the end of the 80s, you're working very, very hard. You're living hand to mouth. You kind of been in terribly great shape as a band. Tell me about the day the band broke up. We were coming up to our seventh album in nine years. So, wow, you know, because and we had to rec- we had to record albums because albums gave you budgets and budgets gave you a wage. And so we're on the cycle. We never got off the cycle because Streets of Your Town wasn't a hit. You know, if Streets of Your Town had been a hit, it would have been okay. We would have finished the tour. There's your twenty thousand dollars. There's your you know, and it would have been okay. Bye, everyone. See you in six months. See you in a year, which successful bands can do. You know, successful bands can buy themselves time to regenerate. We never could. So we'd just finish a tour and then it'd be, okay, Grant and I have got to write the songs. We're demoing in, in four months. We're recording three months after that. And so, you know, like we were, we were pretty tired and wobbly. And so um, we had a practice down in Sydney we weren't a happy band in the practice room. There wasn't that momentum that was going towards let's make an album. Every album we'd made, it was always let's go. You know, okay, we're all digging in. There wasn't that feeling with this album. And after one practice, Grant just said to me, I'm going to leave the band. You know, he said that to me after a practice room in a bar. And I went, I want to leave too. There was other, a lot of other reasons in terms of our personal lives and besides just the band and the, the money. Um, and, and, and how did that feel to you for you to say that? It's a terrible thing, but a liberating thing to say. It, isn't it, it? was, it was, it was liberating. And we, Grant and I had been, we'd started the band, and so we were in our coming up to our twelfth year, and we'd basically had enough. But it sounds like you were eloping from your own band in a way. You two hatching a plan. Yeah, to yeah, escape. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. But we felt there was no other way because it just felt like we'd had enough. And it wasn't just one of us, you know. I didn't then say to Grant, no, 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 stay, stay. I need you. It was like, I want to go too. So did you nonetheless still make plans to keep working together? We did because it was like immediately we started talking about the album that we really wanted to make because there was also musical, you know, like I, I was I was getting into a lot more singer-songwriter stuff and, you know, like I, I wasn't listening to rock music anymore. Um, Grant and I had an abiding love for Bob Dylan, especially Blood on the Tracks, you know, like his acoustic album. So some of the appeal then was of doing something simpler, more acoustic, yeah, 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 we, we, yeah, just yeah. two guitars perhaps yeah, and two yeah. voices. And, and we had the material for it. I, I had five, four or five songs that would fit that thing and so did Grant, and that's what we wanted to do. So immediately it was like it, it felt like the whole wheel had gone back to 1978, let's restart it. And the plan, I think you wrote, was for you would tell Lindy yeah. and Grant would tell Amanda, yeah. who was his partner at the, at the time. And those conversations didn't go well. No. And at, at the end of that, Amanda broke it off with Grant. How, yeah. How distressed was he by that? Extraordinarily. He was broken, which surprised me. Um, just the depth of his despair was, was really, uh, it was very deep. And he, he was just in shock. He didn't see it coming, and I didn't see it coming. Um, 
we basically had this news which, you know, and for Lindy and Amanda, it must have been shocking, especially for Lindy, who'd, who'd been with the band since, um, you know, the middle of 1980. It was like, okay, the carpet's gone. But Grant and I couldn't have gone on with the band. Like, there was no way. It was definitely done. It's like you're all following a star, isn't it? And the star is a beautiful thing. Mm. Then after, after it gets to a point where you actually want to you know, produce a knife and stab the star in the yeah, heart, if, you, if yeah, I mix yeah. my metaphors there, yeah. you want to actually get that star's going to kill you if you don't do something yeah, yeah. about it. And, and you know, there was, there was things in my private life as well, you know, like, well, I'd met my future wife and she was living in Germany, which really didn't play any part on any of the decisions, but it, it was just sort of there as well. Like the, the, Renewal. The, yeah, yeah it, it, and, of course, of course, all of this was going on. Let's not forget this. At, right at the end of the 80s. You know, it was like, this is the end of the decade. You know, the 90s are coming. How are we going to face that? You know, it, there, there, there was an end of time aspect to it all. But it, it really was difficult for Grant because I think the shock also, he didn't see it coming. He loved Amanda and she had to build her life. She had to make her decision. So they split and it was very difficult for... I didn't see her, but I saw him, and it was very, very hard for him. How much contact was there, despite your plans, how much contact was there between you and Grant over the 10 years that followed, which were when you produced solo work? We always stayed in contact. Uh, the, the album that, the, that, that him and I were, were going to make didn't happen, and I think we, we enjoyed our freedom from each other. I think also we bounced away from each other a little bit, but... The other thing that, that we, got, we were faced with later is that people thought, made a classic assumption that the band broke up, the band must have broken up because of the two songwriters. That's rock and roll history, right? You know, like it's always Jagger and Richards break up or, you know, um, John Cale and Lou Reed or Brian Ferry and Eno or Chris Bailey and Ed Cooper. That's the way it always goes. But it wasn't with Grant and I. You know, again, the band's different. It's the songwriters that, that wanted to go off. But... Um, I think that we needed time away from each other. And I, I think um, we're always in contact. But people assumed that Grant and I weren't talking to each other. To an extent, the media were quite surprised. And people were surprised, you know, that didn't know that the inside story thought that we weren't friends anymore when the friendship stayed intact. Then in the year 2000, you reformed the band. Yeah. With new players, Glenn Thompson and Adele Pick fans. Mm-hmm. Was that your idea, both your ideas? How did it that... was Grant's idea. Our, our old record company had put out a, a single best of uh, CD, which didn't exist. There, there, there wasn't a best of the go-betweens in the late 90s that you could buy for, you know, on CD. So the record company um, in London decided to put that out. My manager asked, you know, how are we going to promote this? What are we going to do? And I said, well, you know, Grant and I could go out under our own names, you know, just Forster McLennan, go out and do a... A quick tour, you know, where we'd do interviews in, in the by day and we'd play a club at night and we'd just go around the world very quickly. And we hadn't been on the road long, uh, probably about two weeks, and Grant just said, I, you know, this was in Melbourne in the middle of 1999 and Grant just said, you know, like, I'd like to see you in your room after a sound check. I thought his mum might have been sick because, you know, she'd been unwell just at that time and he just came up to my room, knocked in and uh, knocked on the door, walked in and just said, I want to restart the go-betweens. 
and I was like, wow. Um, I can't say that I was totally unprepared, but we'd done maybe six shows in, into the tour. We still hadn't even left Australia to go to Europe and then go to the USA. And, and there, were, there was a sort of, there's a sort of uh, poetic turn to all of this. I had to ask him twice to start the band back in 1977. The second time he said yes. Then he stopped the band in 89 when he told me, and then he restarted the band when he asked me. So there's sort of, that's going on as well. <laughs> do you know what I mean? As, you know, I've got that in my head as I'm walking around. He has too much power, perhaps, in these situations. Yeah, yeah I'm walking yeah. around the room, you know, just sort of try, <laughs> trying to sort of take in his um, question and the sort of historical ramifications of it. Here's the thing, though. You put out new material. You didn't want to become a tribute band of yourselves. No. You made new material, and, and, and some of your best material was produced in this second, in this yeah. second phase. Now, was, was this a discipline you set yourself, or was it something you just couldn't help? You just had new material, and that's what you wanted to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what, that's what Grant and I were. We were songwriters. We, we wanted to make a second round of material that, in a way, was shadowing or, or based on what we'd done in, in the 80s. We'd started off rough with semi lullaby and we got momentum and so we thought that it'd probably be like that again and so you know like we made three albums from you know 2000 to 2005 and uh oceans apart our last album uh was very strong and grant was very engaged you know like he he was going through a, a new golden period of songwriting after that album not in his personal life though was he no, no, that was something that had really, in terms of relationships and his personal life, you could say that it, it never really worked going all the way back to those songs we were talking about in the early 80s. It was something that was always a work in progress. Other people have written about his issues with drugs at the time mm. or and earlier than that as well. Mm. With those relationship issues and those other issues, things he talked to you about, or did he, did he sort of compartmentalise his life so you wouldn't be having those conversations with him? No, no, we did, especially the, the week after Amanda left him. You know, I'd go down every day and I'd listen to him for hours and that was like a dam burst. All of that... Um, he was very held always. He, he was quite a controlled person. And you, you really had to, very much a believer in manners and, and social, social rules in a way. Although that's not the right word. But, and, Politeness and courtesy. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And so for him to be in tears in front of me and just bewailing his condition was just, I'd known him for 15 years by that time. I'd never seen anything like it. And so later on, when, when the, the band restarted, but also times during that, I'd see him through the, the 90s, and he'd often not be in a good way. And in a way, he couldn't hide it, and he couldn't hide it from me. And perhaps he showed me a side of it. I'm sure he showed other friends, you know, that he, other friends knew he was in trouble and that he had difficulties in his life. I'm sure he showed it to other people. It, it wasn't just me, but... Like in, in 2000, when I, I came back to Brisbane with my family at the end of 2001, he was pretty ragged emotionally. And we, we would have talks. You know, I'd bring the guitar over. Hey, we're going to write songs. We didn't. The guitars didn't come out of the cases. Grant and I were just talking, and he was just trying to articulate how he was feeling. St we're still watching video footage of the time uh, with you and he sitting side by side. Mm. 
very old friends, wordless communication, yeah. playing songs you love, and and, you, and 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 there's a kind of a gentleness between the both of you that's mm-hmm. really evident too. It's it's lovely to see. Thank you, thank you. I mean, we we were always um, comfortable in each other's company, and. We also, I know this is going to sound really obvious, we always had tons to talk about. <laughs> we were both curious. We, we, we had miles behind us that we could access if we wanted to. But the talk was often on now. What are we going to do? Songs. What are you listening to? What are you reading? You know, what did you think of that film on TV last night? All of that sort of stuff. In 2006, the 6th of May, Grant died of a heart attack in his sleep. How, how were you told, Robert? Um, I was, Grant had moved in, had been in this house for a while and his girlfriend, his new girlfriend, Emma was, there was going to be a housewarming party because she was moving into the house. And, um, I visited the house early because I, I'd spoken to him at like around 4.30 thinking that the party would already have started and that there was going to be children there from families that both he and I knew for this housewarming. And I arrived and there was no one in the house. But I could see the house was prepared for a party. So Grant lived out the back in a a two-storey, I'd call it apartment. So he was separated from the house. And and someone from, you know, came in the back door that I'd never met before and just said, you know, like, um, they're prepared for the party, but their party's starting at 6, not 4.30. And so I said, you know, like, what should I do? You know, like, and this person said, well, come back at 6. So I, I left and I went to a bookshop. And then, you know, when I came back, I parked the car, walked over the hill, there's an ambulance outside, and Grant's girlfriend came out and just ran into my arms and just said, my baby's gone. And it was like, wow. And I had to, you know, go on from there. Yeah, to lose a friend at that young age after a heart attack, uh, how awful and how horrible and weird. It must have been, a, aside from the overwhelming grief, it must have felt very weird, all of that, Robert, as it unfolded. It was. It was um, because, you know, like I, I hadn't really lost anyone in my life up until that moment. You know, still my parents are alive and, you know, my, my, my grandparents had died you know, not young, and everything had a was regular, as it could be. So, um, Grant passing at forty-eight was the first major death, really, that I, that I went through. But there was a small part of it; it wasn't a total surprise. If anyone was going to go around me at that age, it was going to be Grant. And so there was a little voice at the back of me that went, you know, I thought he'd make 60 or 65. And I, th- I think he thought that too. He wasn't going to make 95 or 85. He didn't look after himself well enough to do that. But 48 was a shock. When you th- reflect on your long friendship and working partnership, what are the moments that kind of really, the images you get that inspire the most affection for him? I think it's always when we're talking. And he was very different to me in temperament, but very similar to me in life circumstance. We met each other when we were 18 and we were very obsessed with pop culture. We both thought that we were very talented. We didn't know at what. (laughs) So he was a vital person to meet. 
and I was probably a vital person for him to meet. And it, it was always, it, it goes back to that, that those conversations that, that we had, I see us talking to each other. You know, and so when, when people ask me, you know, like, what do you miss about Grant? It's, it's I can only say as a friend, and this is what I come back to. It's, it's if you will, it's the conversation, you know, and a lot of laughs and... and the two uh, guys sword fighting. Yeah, exactly, of, the sword fighting, yeah. the ease of it all. We, we were still those guys at the end, you know, and, and so those are the moments where, and, you know, like obviously he's, you know, like one final point about this is that he's obviously someone who has a very similar set of interests to me, so... We, we can talk very easily. That's the moments that I remember with affection, not us on stage. You just said that in the present tense. Is he still there in your mind? Do you, do you, do you get feedback from him on your songs? <laughs> when I was writing this book, he was in my dreams. Um, you know, like uh, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd, I'd tell my wife, oh, dream about Grant. You know, like, and it was just like, you know, like people in your dreams, when you wake up, they go very quickly, those dreams. But it's very present, you know, when you're when you're actually in the the dream. And I think I'm still in Brisbane, which is you know his town, and I still hear his music. I've spent the last seven years writing about him, so yes, he is still very much here. I love this book. I really enjoyed reading it. Oh, thank and you. Congratulations on it, Robert. Thank and you. How wonderful to hear you tell this story. Uh, I wish more people from this period would write books. Like this, as good as this, a real treasure. Thank you well, so much. Well, maybe I'll start a trend. Maybe you will. I <laughs> hope indeed you do. Robert, thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Richard. Robert Forster is the author of Grant and I, Inside and Outside, The Go-Betweens. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feitler. <laughs> Listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au/slash conversations.